Well, thank you very much indeed for your welcome. Thank you, Alan, for the invitation to be here. It's lovely uh, to join you this morning. And uh, I would like to say thank you to um, many of you who are already kind supporters of Langham Partnership. You may know that actually this weekend, the uh, next stage of the event in Indonesia, Langham Preachings event in Langham uh, in, in Indonesia, which John and Ruth Chambers have been looking after, uh, is taking place for this coming week. And many of you have been very kind in praying for that. That's one of uh, 62 countries now where there is activity developing to equip a new generation of preachers and teachers and evangelists and uh, lay preachers of all kinds. And uh, we'd be delighted if you'd like to know more about that. Uh, the Langham propaganda is on the table at the back. It's all free of charge. Please do help yourself. And if you'd like to receive anything regularly, there's a little sign-up sheet. You're welcome to uh, use that. Well, uh, do have your Bibles open, please, at uh, page 1093. We're going to look very briefly at this incredible story in Acts chapter 2. And as you'll see on the screen, uh, we're looking at this under the title of God's Global Purpose. Um, I wonder if any of you here can remember the occasion when NASA put the first man into orbit around the Earth. You all look too young to me, actually. A few of us do. I was only seven years old at the time, so I can't remember very much. But I did read recently that uh, there was some disagreement between the NASA officials and the astronauts because as they prepared the, uh, the little capsule, the astronauts were quite keen to have a window in this capsule so that as they spun around the Earth, they could capture some incredible views. The NASA officials, of course, very health and safety-minded, uh, thought that would not be a good idea. But in the end, the astronauts won, and uh, they did have a small window in their capsule. Uh, one cosmonaut from Russia in one of the early loops around the world explained how startled he was by the experience of trying to locate Everest. It was so small, he couldn't identify this incredible mountain. And a Saudi astronaut said this, The first day or two, we all pointed to our countries. The third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were aware only of the Earth. And um, that quotation is from a book which has recently been published. It's called Global Citizens, and uh, it's seeking to encourage people to have a change of perspective. It's not a Christian title, but it's trying to encourage people in this country and indeed around the world to think globally. And of course, when Luke uh, wrote here in the book of Acts, in these opening chapters, that was precisely what he was trying to do, to encourage those early disciples and indeed all Christians to have a global perspective. You can see that in the trajectory of his opening words in chapter 1. Do you remember when he introduces to the early disciples through Jesus that the gospel was going to advance from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and onwards to the ends of the earth? And to engage in that mission, Jesus needed to change the very narrow nationalistic agenda of those early Christians to become much more aware of God's global purposes. And not only that, of course, if they were going to change from being rather cautious disciples to being people who were going to take on the world, then they needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's precisely what comes together in this remarkable chapter of, uh, of Luke's account. So I've divided it into three simple uh, ideas so that we can cover the chapter and its big points. First of all, uh, verses 1 to 4 
It is God's power described here. Well, we've already had a very good description of Pentecost from Alan as he uh, spoke to all of us and the children too. Uh, Pentecost was a Jewish feast, and as you see from Luke's account, crowds came to it from all across the known world. Uh, The word means 50th. It was the 50th day after the Passover, and it was called the Feast of Weeks. That's seven weeks, that's 50 days after Passover, and that was a very significant association. Uh, Passover, of course, was the great moment, the greatest moment in Israel's history as they were redeemed through the shedding of blood out of Egypt. And so Pentecost reminds us of God's redemptive work in the same way as the Spirit comes to accomplish in us what Jesus has done for us. So Peter says at the end of his sermon, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, it is a saving event. And Pentecost is also a celebration, as we saw earlier on, a celebration of the giving of the law. Uh, Some writers suggested that the law was given on Mount Sinai 50 days after the Passover. So there's a close connection between Pentecost and the law, as uh, Alan explained to us. And that association is significant. Uh, The law was given to shape our lives, to make us the kind of people we should be. But of course, in the Old Testament, it was an external standard. But now, of course, by the Holy Spirit, it is now written on our hearts. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So Pentecost saw that promise being fulfilled. So it's not only a saving event, it's also a moral event. And then, as we saw through what Alan presented, Pentecost was the Feast of First Fruits. That was the time when the first ears of corn were gathered and were offered to God. It was part of the harvest celebration and it anticipated a much greater harvest to come. And here in Acts 2, of course, it was, Pentecost was the first fruits of the harvest of the gospel. And that harvest has continued to roll out ever since the day of Pentecost and continues through our day. So it's not only a saving event and a moral event, it's also a missionary event. Uh, This harvest is continuing. We're part of the fastest growing family on the planet. In many parts of the world, the church is growing rapidly as this harvest increases. In Nigeria this morning, there are more people in Anglican churches there than in all of the Anglican churches here in the United Kingdom, in Western Europe, in Australia, in Canada, and the United States combined. There is a phenomenal harvest around the world. In China, there are more believers today worshipping the Lord than in the whole of Western Europe. Something in the region of 1,600 new churches are being planted every week. Something like 45,000 new believers come to faith every week in Africa. All these figures are rather difficult to come by. We are part of this rapidly expanding family of God, which is part of the harvest which Pentecost introduces. But there's just another thing to notice before we come to the second point, and that is the way in which the coming of the Holy Spirit is described. We've got this lovely visual image immediately above me, and there is very dramatic language in those opening verses in Acts. There are three dramatic illustrations. Uh, First of all, if my uh, system will advance, 
which it doesn't seem to... Ah, there we go. First of all, as uh, Luke describes it in verse 1, the rushing wind. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a, uh, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. The early church needed a violent wind. It's not a dove here as it was in Jesus' experience when he was sent out in the power of the Spirit in his ministry. The early church needed to have a powerful and unmistakable work of God to get them mobilized, to get them moving out of their comfort zones and into the demands of sharing the good news of Jesus all around the world. I can't help think that's precisely what we often need of course, the Holy Spirit encourage us, encourages us and equips us and comforts us and strengthens us, but he is also the Holy Spirit who disturbs us, who is an uncomfortable uh, spirit who pushes us out beyond our own comfort zones to serve him. And then, of course, secondly, there are these tongues of fire. Luke says, verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, the uh, idea of uh, fire is frequently symbolic of God's holiness. You'll remember in Exodus 3, when Moses encountered God there at the burning bush, the place where you are standing is holy ground. Or Malachi, announcing the day of judgment, he will be like the refiner's fire. So here in Acts 2, God's Spirit was amongst them and was upon them individually. And the words are symbolic of God's empowering, of the holiness of the God who is amongst us now by his Holy Spirit. And I wonder how often we think about this in our own lives. We've sung some beautiful words in the songs this morning, as well as read this remarkable chapter, to what extent do we allow God's Holy Spirit to be at work in us individually and corporately to begin and continue that process of transformation, that movement towards holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, as he makes us, by the Holy Spirit, he makes us to be the kind of people we should be. And then there's one other further illustration in this chapter, not only a wind and fire, but of course also, if it will advance, can you kick it along for me, Thomas? Thank you so much. Also, languages or speech, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And the significance of that is linked to the second idea I want to introduce. We've seen the power of God in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, I'm going to have to ask you to advance. Secondly, God's purpose. Verses 5 onwards. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. The speaking of these languages was related to this huge crowd from throughout the known world. And I wonder when you read that verse, if you're reminded of the early promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's purposes 
are for all men and women. And you can see it very clearly in this chapter. If we just advance uh, the the section, first of all, all nations who are there. Luke records God-fearing Jews had gathered for this great harvest festival in Jerusalem from throughout the known world. In verse 17, in Peter's sermon, you see there's a deliberate reference to the prophecy in Joel, the Old Testament prophecy, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on your servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in these days. So the coming of the Spirit signaled that the good news of Jesus Christ is for all men and women and children. It is for all, irrespective of age or gender or nationality or ethnicity or dialect or language. It is good news for all. And one more expression there in verse 39. It is for all people without exception. This promise given at the end of Peter's sermon, there is forgiveness And the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off. So these remarkable words not only look back to God's promise at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12, the promise to all people, but also points forward to that day. Do you remember in John's vision when he looked up and he saw, anticipated in the song of heaven, that there would be people there, Revelation 7, from every nation, tribe, language, and people, worshipping the Lamb. Well, these verses, this day of Pentecost, the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, point us very clearly to God's global purpose, his desire that all men and women should come to know Jesus himself, Christ who died for all. And these verses make the point very directly that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to cross every barrier and all men and women must hear that word. Um, I was in a church for some years in the southwest of England, in Exeter, and um, I always remember in the prayer meetings which we used to have on the Monday evening, there were several people, several Devonian believers, who, although they'd never moved outside of the county, definitely had this kind of expansive global perspective. Uh, We had one uh, man who almost every prayer meeting would pray all around the world. His prayers lasted about 20 minutes. Uh, His name was Mr. Cook, actually. We called them Cook's Tours. And um, he prayed all around the world. There was another good friend of mine who would stand up and he would pray, Lord, he'd hold his hands together, Lord, we pray for all of the people in the uninhabited parts of the world. We, we pray for all of the people in the uninhabited parts of the world. And God knew what he meant, and we knew what he meant. Here was somebody who had a passion for all, who understood what this chapter is all about. God's purposes are for all. Acts 2 reminds us that we are not to stand passively looking up, waiting for Jesus to return. We're to take the opportunity, like those early disciples, forced out by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus all around the globe. He is the saviour of the world. And Luke wants us to have that international perspective. God's purpose, as verse 5 hints, is for every nation under heaven, for all men and women. Then the third heading and the final uh, section I've called God's person. (coughs) The remarkable sermon which uh, Peter Preaches. After these dramatic events, the, the wind, 
the tongues of fire, the languages, this international crowd, all of the turmoil of that event, Peter stands up and as a result of the Spirit's empowering, delivers this remarkable message. It is, of course, a fantastic uh, uh, illustration of what the gospel, the Christian message, is all about. All I'd like to do is highlight two simple things. First, it is, of course, about Jesus, the Savior. Verses 23 and 24, in his sermon, he deliberately highlights to that crowd, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was handed over to you by God's will and purpose and knowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And in a very carefully crafted sermon using Old Testament evidence and the witness of the apostles and their own eyewitness testimony to what Jesus had done, he focused on the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, the Savior of all. Now, this is really important for us to sustain in terms of our uh, statements of belief, as we have done this morning, but also at the heart of our message. I was with a group of students uh, not long ago who were trying to uh, share their faith with a a particular cult. It was a spin-off of something called the Divine Light Mission, and they were on their particular uh, university campus. And uh, the Christians said, well, we told them Jesus has given us love and joy and peace. And they, they replied, well, we've got love and joy, and peace. And the Christian students wondered where they should go next. And in the discussion, someone rightly pointed out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance, do you remember what he said? The historic, the objective realities of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who died for our sins, and who was raised again. Exactly what Peter here proclaims at the heart of the message. Paul underlines that as of first importance because it is the anchor for our faith. It's actually the foundation. These realities are then the foundation for our experience of all that Jesus has done for us. It is the foundation for his appeal that men and women should repent and believe and receive forgiveness. This historical reality of Jesus who died and rose again. But very significantly, in fact, the climax of what Peter says about the person of Jesus is, secondly, Jesus the Lord. He's preaching to this Jewish audience, and in a very bold statement, he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And the result on that day of Peter's preaching was that people were very deeply disturbed. They were shaken They were smitten in their conscience. What shall we do, they said. And because it was, uh, in Peter's view, not only talking about what God offers, but also what God demands, he replied, repent and be baptized. They had rejected Jesus, so now they must undergo this radical change of attitude, this change of mind. They must submit to him as Lord. They must demonstrate their acceptance of Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord by being baptised. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ means that he calls on all men everywhere to repent. It's a message for you, for all men and women, and it's expressed, verse 39, for all who are afar off. Now why is this so significant? 
Well, it's particularly significant in our culture as it was in the first century because we are living in an environment where there are so many claims to truth. We live in a country where there are now many, many religions. And it's not at all unusual for people to come to say to us, it's all right for you to be Christians, but don't absolutize it. Don't universalize it. Don't say that Jesus is the saviour of the world. After all, there are now 1.5 million Muslims in the United Kingdom. That's more than there are communicant members of the Church of England. So why are you so arrogant? What rights do you have to say that Jesus is the saviour of the world? And these verses help us to respond with conviction, with humility, to that kind of question. We are sent by Jesus the King, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord. Because he is the Lord and Christ, he sends us out into the whole world. Do you remember how Matthew records Jesus' words? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let me draw to a close by quoting something which John Stott wrote on this subject of mission. Nothing is more important for the recovery of the church's mission, where it's been lost, or its development, where it is weak, than a fresh, clear, and comprehensive vision of Jesus Christ. When he is demeaned, and especially when he is denied in the fullness of his unique person and work, the church lacks motivation and direction, our morale crumbles, and our mission disintegrates. But when we see Jesus... It is enough. We have all the inspiration, incentive, authority, and power we need. And that is the answer to the needs of the fractured world in which we live. It's the answer, actually, to the fractured lives which we might have, our own brokenness and weakness. It is Jesus. It is Jesus the Saviour, Jesus the Lord. And if we have Jesus, we have enough So today, as we celebrate Pentecost, we remember a remarkable day in the history of the church in the first century. It points us back to God's promises in Genesis that that through Abraham he would bless all nations. It points us forward to that day when around the Lamb and around the throne in heaven there will be people from every tribe and tongue and language and people. But it's also a dramatic and an urgent reminder For this present moment, our task in sharing the good news with men and women immediately outside this building and all around the world. So here's the summary. It's actually a Trinitarian that we've looked at this morning, the last slide. Oh, no, that was the quote. Carry on. And that is this. We receive the power of God by the Holy Spirit That is a power promised to us for witness to Christ. We are motivated by this purpose of God the Father. And we share the good news of God the Son, who is the Saviour and Lord of all. Let's hold those three things in our mind, God's power, God's purpose, and God's person in Jesus Christ, as he sends us out in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that by your Holy Spirit you will draw us closer to Jesus Christ. You will help us to understand more of your love, 
You will reveal to us the truth of your word. You will make us more like Jesus Christ through the fruit of that spirit. And you will empower us for witness to him here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.